Brothers and sisters, it's good to see you here. And uh, it's good also to see some folks that I've not seen in quite some time. Uh, we'll be continuing today our series from John. So please keep your Bible open at John chapter 21 and be looking at verses 1 to 14. Let's pray before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, help me to preach faithfully. Help us to listen faithfully. And help us to respond faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we continue looking at John, we have been seeing a pattern ever since Jesus was raised up, haven't we? It seems that the disciples who scattered during the crucifixion of Jesus were not responding correctly. The disciples scattered. Peter saw the tomb was empty and he went home. The disciples who saw the risen Jesus like Thomas doubted. Now, Jesus had been preparing them for this through his teaching and his ministry, especially we see that during the Last Supper. And yet it seems like they're just not getting it. They're just not responding correctly. This isn't something new for us, isn't it? Sometimes we look at those whose Christian commitment seems shaky. Maybe they're not regular at church, or they're finding it hard to join together with others in doing the work of ministry. And it's really tempting to see them as spiritual failures, isn't it? This can even be us at times when we are not responding correctly. So let's keep this in mind as we see what today's passage has to tell us about these things. As we come to our passage, verse 1 begins by telling us that Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias which is another name for the Sea of Galilee, which is a large lake near Galilee. So this tells us that the disciples were gathered together at Galilee, which is home for many of them. In verse 2, we see the usual suspects being named. We see in the list, Peter and Thomas, who are significant because we have seen them before recently. Peter was the first to enter the empty tomb, and he knows Jesus is not in the tomb, then he went home. Thomas, doubting the truth of the resurrection, challenged that he will only believe if he can see for himself and put his finger in the hole before he believes. Jesus appeared. Thomas fell down and declared, My Lord and my God. Yet here, we find the disciples gathering in Galilee. What should we make of this? Have they lost the plot? Shouldn't they be going around telling people that Christ has risen? To add to that, we see in verse 3 that Peter says, I am going fishing. And in response, they also said that they will go with him. At this point, we are so tempted to shake our head, isn't it? We are so tempted to say, if this was me, I would go out and proclaim Christ to everyone since I know he's risen. We may want to scold the disciples. Come on, guys, get your act together. However, Let's not be too hasty to proclaim judgment on the disciples. Now, according to Matthew and Mark, Jesus has made it clear to his disciples that they were to meet him in Galilee. So this is not really a picture of them not caring and wanting to go fishing for fun. Rather, the picture is the disciples are gathered in Galilee, the place where Jesus has said that he will meet them. But since Jesus was not there, they are lost. So rather than look down on them, we should see that these are sheep without a shepherd. They're lost, directionless. They don't know what to do. 
So they fall back to what they know. They return back to fishing. Now, John's gospel doesn't tell us this, but in Luke, we see that some of the disciples were fishermen from the start, and they were called when they were still fishing. Now, they must be feeling useless, not knowing what to do, so they turn to the one thing that they know, which was fishing. And friends, fishing here isn't a fun or recreational activity in this context. It's hard work. So we see them going out into the night to catch fish. This is what fishermen do. They will go out to fish at night and return at dawn with their catch in order to eke out a living. So we should see this fishing trip then as a commitment to many hours of hard work and not them doing the wrong thing because they don't care or trying to get out of ministry work. This is a picture of them being lost and not knowing what to do. And that's why they turn to something that they do know, which is fishing. Yet at the same time, we also know that this is John's gospel. And the symbolism that John uses for night is often tied in with spiritual blindness. When did Nicodemus first come to see Jesus? Night. When did the arrest and trial of Jesus take place? At night. So in the same way, feeling lost, without a mission, the disciples embark on their fishing trip at night. Now the point here isn't to emphasize on their failures and their spiritual blindness, but rather if you look at the next verse, we get a hint of where John is going with this. We come to verse 4, and just as the day was breaking, just as darkness is about to turn to dawn, when the light is about to come through, we see Jesus. Just as how darkness is used to signify spiritual blindness, that change from dark to light is coming in to show us the reverse. Finally, the Master has come for his disciples. The darkness is going to be replaced by light. So we eagerly anticipate what's going to happen here. And so we see Jesus standing on the shore. And the disciples were in a little boat at sea in the dark. And it's not really surprising that they don't know that Jesus was there. In a sense, John is also showing that there's still something lacking in their response to Jesus here. And he seems to point out that they can't recognize Jesus. But this is going to change soon. Jesus calls out to them and he says, Children, do you have any fish? Now, I know if I looked at you and called you children, it would sound very condensing. But here, Jesus is not using the term children in a mocking manner, but rather in a loving manner. It's the language of a teacher referring to his beloved students. Jesus has told them before that they must become like children in their obedience towards him to enter the kingdom. And judging by their response, it does look that, like they're responding in a helpful way. As they have to answer this man who's asking them about the fruit of the hours of their labor, to tell them, no, they have no fish. Imagine the frustration, can't you? Now, this would be seasoned fishermen, and they have toiled for hours in the dark, and now that dawn is about to break, they are about to return back empty-handed, having nothing to show for all their labors. Their labors have been futile up to this point. Then in verse 6, Jesus tells them to cast the net on the right side of the boat. And if they do that, they will find some. 
Now friends, this entire encounter has to remind us of how in Luke chapter 5, Jesus first called them out from being fishermen. And we see a similar situation there, where they're fishing, they didn't have any catch. Jesus tells them and hesitantly, Peter lowers the net. And they get a large catch to the point that the net breaks. Of course, one good question to ask is, should we be mixing up the Gospels? Shouldn't we be studying John for what John is saying? Because generally, if we jump from Gospel to Gospel to understand things, without studying that particular Gospel deeply, you will miss out on the subtleties and the specific message of that particular Gospel. However, we also need to consider what John's intention is in saying these things. And I think John is clearly making an allusion to Luke here because we will notice that the men named in Luke are almost the same guys. We see Peter, we see the sons of Zebedee, then we see how John mentions here in verse 11 how despite the large catch, the net was not broken. And this contrasts with how the net broke in Luke's description of that first calling. There would be no reason to state that the net was not broken unless he is pointing to an expectation that the readers would have when they read this narrative. An expectation that comes from knowing Luke's account of how the disciples were first called. So all things considered, I think John is making an allusion to that first calling in Luke's narrative, where he shares this as the second calling of the disciples to show us that something is different this time round. Now in Luke, Jesus told them, if they follow him, he will make them into fishers of men, something that so far has not become true yet. The idea explored in Luke that the disciples will be made into fishers of men is something that John seems to be co-opting now into his narrative. And this ties into the flow of the story so far, right? Jesus has been preparing the disciples to go out to do his will throughout John's gospel. And we see that in the instructions he leaves them with during the Last Supper, we see that as he prays the high priestly prayer for them. Then last week, we saw that Jesus told the disciples when he first appeared after the resurrection that as the Father have sent him, he will send them out into the world. The theme that John's gospel is pursuing here is clear then. Jesus has called them to be those who witness about him. And he points them to the role of the Holy Spirit which is uh, who is going to enable them. And this is something which they have not received yet in that full sense. So the movement here that John is showing us is bringing us towards this point in the beginning of the book of Acts where you will see the disciples responding correctly, praying faithfully until finally the Holy Spirit comes unto them and they are able to do this. So how will these disciples, that so far John is showing us to be weak and flawed, how are they going to be able to do this monumental task that Jesus has set before them. That's the point that John is trying to bring here. That is what's happening here with the story of the boat and the fish. John is trying to show us the change that's going to happen, the promise of a future movement where they will become enabled to do all that Jesus has asked them to do. So here, Jesus tells them to cast the net and they do it without arguing. And this time, they bring about a full net that does not burst. And it kind of shows that this is a better calling than the one in Luke. Finally, they're able to complete their task. 
the task becomes something that they will be able to do successfully because Jesus is going to enable them, just as he's demonstrating to them with this catch of fish. The point, of course, isn't so much about the fishes. And so in verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved, most likely the Apostle John, realizes this, and he told Peter, it's the Lord. There's a picture here that as night turns to day, in light of this miracle, we see their spiritual blindness being cured then. The disciples that abandoned Jesus, who ran away, these disciples who were masterless and lost, now they're able to recognize the works of the Lord. Peter then hears about this, and he does something really interesting. You see, he has taken off his outer garments because he was fishing, and hearing this, he puts on his clothes and jumps into the sea. Now, if you want to swim and jump into the sea, you would take off your clothes. So why did he put on his clothes? And this shows us that hearing that it is Jesus who's talking to them from the shore, he is so eager to see the master. He puts on his clothes to go and see him. And when he realized yeah, the boat still have to sail to the shore, Peter, being Peter, just went, forget that, and jumped in to swim to Jesus. He will not wait a few more moments. He must go to his master urgently. So at this point, we will realize that if we've been thinking the disciples didn't care for Jesus, we can see that that's a wrong idea, isn't it? It's like this picture that we always see in the airport. Having someone that people have been eagerly awaiting for finally walks out of that terminal gate, Everything is dropped. You run straight to them and you hug them. That's exactly what's happening with Peter. This is an expression of love and trust. And you'll also note that there's this ongoing thing between John and Peter, right? John takes credit to be the first one to figure it out. But in a backhand manner, he's actually complimenting Peter, isn't it? In fact, this has been happening for quite some time, if you haven't noticed. John claims that he won the foot race to the tomb. But who does he give the credit to? As the one who had the courage to go into the tomb to look? It was actually Peter. Here, he claims, I'm the first to figure out it was Jesus. But who is the one who responded so powerfully by jumping into the water? It was Peter. So the beloved disciple here, he isn't really exalting himself. Yes, he's making fun of Peter a little bit showing us that his character is brash and loud, but actually his real intention is to give a backhanded compliment to Peter. He responds well to Jesus. And that's probably something for you to keep in mind when you are bantering with your Christian friends. Are you setting yourself up or are you building someone else up? This beloved disciple versus Peter thing isn't a work of product. It's a subtle, tongue-in-cheek manner of showing love for a brother, it just happens to be a little bit over the top, as Simon Peter was. Now, the relationship between the beloved disciple and Peter is not competition or enmity, but it is genuine brotherly love as only guys can show. You see, friends, when girls meet their girlfriends and guys meet their girl guy friends, there's a difference. Girls who meet each other, they'll be calling each other dearie, sweetie, darling, well, when guys meet each other, they will lovingly refer to each other as Tinko, Fatty, and King Kong. It's a very guy thing. And things have not changed much in 2,000 years. Then, in verse 8, we see the other disciple, 
coming behind Peter as they dragged the net full of fish. All of them respond by coming to see Jesus. Jesus is drawing his people to him. And then here comes the kicker. In verse 9, they reach the shore and they see a charcoal fire with fish already laid out on it and bread. Jesus didn't actually need them to catch fish. He already has provided for them. Now, there's no point in us asking, where did Jesus get the fish from, right? I mean, if we do that, we're missing the point. Where did the disciple get the fish when they couldn't find any as they worked all night? Jesus is the one who provides for them. Both the fish in their net and the fish being cooked here comes from Jesus. It's very likely Jesus didn't come with fish pre-packed or he secretly fished before them. It's a miraculous provision. Just as how Jesus had fed the 4,000 and the 5,000 in John's Gospel. In providing that fish in the net, what had been fruitless labor for hours and hours becomes at the very last minute fruitful, isn't it? Jesus gives meaning to their labors. Why didn't they get any fish as they relied on their own skill? It could be really bad luck. Or it could be something that Jesus did to teach them, isn't it? They need him to bring meaning into their labors because he is the one that provides. And that's what he's teaching. In fact, in having the fish cooking and the bread ready for them, Jesus teaches that he is the one that provides for them, just as how he showed the 4,000 and 5,000 when he fed that great multitude. And can you see how this ties in with the disciples waiting and not knowing what to do with Jesus? This was what they needed for their labor to have any meaning. They couldn't have gone on to do the great things that Jesus has promised them if they were relying on their strength. They need Jesus. Then we come to verse 10, and we see that Jesus has told them to bring some of the fish that they had just caught. Uh, did he maybe not have enough fish on the charcoal fire for everyone? Of course not. He fed 5,000. The disciples are nothing compared to that. Yet in asking them to bring the fruits of their labor before him, we see Jesus showing them that to Jesus, that labor mattered. He wanted them to offer this fish to him. And friends, that's so comforting, isn't it? While God is the one who sustains us and gives us everything, it still pleases him when we offer the works of our hands that actually he gave to us. It reminds me of how when I was young, I would take some colour pencil to make a Happy Father's Day card. Then taking some money my mom will give to me, go and buy that a present. And I'll go and buy a present. But actually... The one who bought the color pencils was my dad. The one who gave money to my mom to give to me was also my dad. In the end, it was all him. Yet he was happy to receive my horribly drawn cards and simple presents. Jesus too is like that. He enables us to serve him. And he is pleased then when we come back to offer to him that which was actually his. Then we see that confrontation between Jesus and his disciples. They're all there now. Is he going to tell them they still don't understand that they have failed him? Peter denied him three times. Thomas doubted. The disciples ran. He says, come and have breakfast. 
Imagine these moments when you feel far from God, when you don't feel like obeying, when you are struggling to know how to obey, when you feel lost and directionless. Imagine Jesus coming to you in that moment and saying, come, eat. This is the heart of a true shepherd, friends, the one who loves his sheep, willing to die for them. This is the true picture of what our leaders should be emulating. How do we behave when someone in our small group is missing church attendance or is not too keen to join Bible studies? How do we treat those who don't show the same passion for ministry as others do? How do we treat those who seem to keep on falling back on their sin and seem to be struggling more times than they have things right? Leaders, look to Jesus. This is how we are to treat the sheep. And those who are discouraged by leadership that doesn't look like Christ or have been wronged by them, find comfort them. This is what the true shepherd is like. He is gentle and guides you back to him with a soft hand to seek comfort and nourishment from him, to teach you to trust and keep on going because of him. With that, the passage ends with a reminder. This is the third time Jesus was revealed. And this shows us how things have been growing higher and higher with each revelation. The disciples are well on that way to becoming the leaders that we see at the beginning of Acts. And all of this is because Christ shows them gentleness, love, and mercy. So as we bring it to our context today, the most important application is to see that Christ is here to show that he is the one who enables their ministry and there will be a great harvest in what the disciples will do. And we see that in Acts, in the early church. And we should understand that this is Jesus enabling and providing success in their labors. Jesus has restored them. So that we can have full confidence in following these disciples. These are no longer the ones who ran away, the ones who abandoned Jesus, but these are restored disciples. And they're restored here to show that his purpose in calling them is being fulfilled. Now we are those who continue on the same mission as the disciples, aren't we? Just as how Jesus prepares, enables, and sends the disciples, he sends us out to do ministry, to bring the gospel. And his promise to us is that he will be with us even until the end of time. Knowing that Jesus has promised to do this to us, even we can toil in ministry despite our struggles. Even we can trust in him, can't we? And friends, even if we toil all our lives and there seem to be no fruits, we can trust Jesus to use our labors for his glory, can't we? Because he's the one that enables and he's the one that stops us from getting the fruits. So if your ministry doesn't seem to be going anywhere, look to Jesus. He is the one who enables. He is the one who brings you fruits in your ministry to him. So even if you don't see the fruits in yourself right now, in your ministry right now, despite faithfully trusting Jesus, despite working for him, keep on doing it because when you come to that shore, your net will be filled. So don't rely on yourself. But no, it is Jesus who enables you. Pray, seek him first, 
build your foundation on the rock that is Jesus. Let go of your discouragement. He is in control. So friends, don't measure your success by numbers and conversions. Measure it by your reliance, faithfulness, and trust in Jesus. Jesus is the one who enables ministry. He provides. We are directionless without him. So trust in the things that he has instituted and trust in him as you serve God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ has come, that he has redeemed the disciples, that he has sent them out, that today we are sitting here forgiven of our sins, trusting in you through the gospel that they have preached. Father, bless us in our ministry. Let us seek to bring fruits for your kingdom. Father, we pray that as we do that, that we will know it is Jesus who enables us, it is Jesus who provides to help us to be trusting in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.